I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's episode is very meaningful for me because I have a conversation with someone I deeply admire, author and fellow Native Memphian, Lita McCullough-Seletsky. Lita joins me to discuss her recently published book titled The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., The book centers around a famous photograph taken of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination at the Lorraine Motel in 1968. In the photo, there is a man kneeling next to King holding a towel to his gunshot wound. The man kneeling in that photo is undercover police officer Morel Mack McCullough, one of only a handful of black officers working for the Memphis police in 1968, and he's also Lita's father. Morel McCullough, or Mack as he was also known, while undercover for the Memphis police, became a member of a Black activist group called the Invaders, a group that happened to be in talks with Dr. King in the days leading up to the murder. Lita's beautifully written memoir tells the harrowing story of what happened on the balcony that night. It's the story of Mac's life, of her father's life, and of course, of her own life, and what it was like growing up as the daughter of a man who was present for one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So without further ado, Please enjoy my conversation with Lita McCullough-Seletsky. Lita, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, I am so incredibly excited to talk about your book, The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I have to tell you, I was riveted from, from cover to cover. Now, the genesis of the book is this iconic photo that was taken on the evening of April 4th, 1968. Everybody's seen this photo. It's the photo of the moment that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And in the photo, you can see several people on the balcony. They're pointing in the direction of where they thought the shot came from. But there's a man who's kneeling over Dr. King and he's holding a towel. He's holding a towel to his head. He's trying to essentially save his life. And that man was Morel McCullough, your father, also known as Mac in the book, right? That's incredible. So I have seen this photo a thousand times, but when was the first time you saw the photo? I first saw the photo as a small child. I'm talking maybe five, you know, four or five years old. And so my mom, who at the time she showed me this photo, was a, a reporter at the Memphis Commercial Appeal, showed the picture to me and also my little brother. And I think maybe it was in the paper or something like that. But I just remember that she showed us this photo and simply said, this is your father. And he was a Memphis police officer. And so we were made to understand that this was a very significant photo. And of course, just seeing the content of it, knowing that it was a a tragic event. She also was telegraphing to us that this was not something that we were to discuss. This was really, you know, all that was going to be said about this photo and my father's presence in it. When did you actually delve into the photo? Because I know in some of your interviews and in the book, you actually went back to the photo later in life where you started to ask questions. What was that like? Well, it was really scary, you know, to delve back into that photo, having lived for so many years with the silence around it, and then kind of gradually learning bits of information, you know, about my father and about his work that made that silence feel even more sinister, you know, than it it did at the very beginning. You know, I learned at around the age of 11 or so that he was a CIA officer. You know, and again, this was something else that wasn't discussed. 
And then I learned from the newspaper as a teenager that my father wasn't just any Memphis police officer on the scene. He was an undercover police officer. He was a mole infiltrating a black militant group. So, you know, I had these bits of information. And so it just raised so many more questions for me about my father's presence in the photo, but also kind of raised the stakes of what the truth might be. And so to finally break that silence and delve into the photo, it really felt like plunging into the unknown and doing so with the faith that, you know, the pursuit of the truth was worth the risk that I might uncover something that, you know, I didn't want to hear, something that perhaps I would have a hard time living with. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to get into your father's story and go a bit deeper into the book. But before we do that, I want to talk about you and your relationship to Memphis. So I've always had this affinity for you because I also grew up in Memphis, but also because you're just a really nice person. I mean, you're, you're actually one of my favorite people, if not my favorite persons online. You know, that's part of it. But also because we both grew up in Memphis and I think we're probably close to the same age. So we had some of the same experiences. Memphis is a really special town. It's a really special city, right? And I feel very, you know, lucky to have grown up there, right? It's been central to the civil rights struggle. But growing up there and living there as a Black person, there's also a lot of pain that comes from that. And I just want to talk to you about that for a bit, because there's this pervasive sense of oppression, I think, that kind of follows you if you live in Memphis and you're Black. And I sensed some of that tension in your stories, particularly in the parts of your book where you had to go back and do research. Am I right about that? Like, just tell me about that and how you felt. Absolutely. And first of all, I want to say the feeling is mutual. You are absolutely one of my favorites. <laughs> and I do feel like, you know, we have this affinity just because, you know, I mean, we just, we like each other, but also <laughs> we have this common upbringing in Memphis and, you know, growing up there, you know, during the same era. And so absolutely, I feel very lucky to have grown up there. I feel that it gave me it's a rich soil, I think, for the arts in particular, for creative endeavors. And then also growing up there as a Black person, it gives you this sense of history. The civil rights movement just feels very much present and current and the history there, the legacies of the people who fought for equity and dignity and fought racism. You know, it's all there. It's all a living history. It's a very soulful place with character. However, as you mentioned, it's complicated because there is a lot of pain there because just as that sense of history is ever present, well, a part of that history is the oppression. That also feels very present. And the experiences that I had growing up there were quite formative and feel fresh. The first memory that I have of going to preschool and being out on the playground, you know, first generation of my family to grow up during integration, being told by these two white girls, point blank, you know, we don't want to play with you because you're black. The way that that felt, and I can still feel that body blow. You know, I mean, now there's this video going around of the little girl who was ignored at this medals ceremony. When I see that video, I feel that. I feel that so deeply because perhaps, you know, my experiences weren't nearly as momentous as that, you know, being on this 
grand stage. But I think many of us, you know, as black women and, you know, having grown up as black girls, we felt that we experienced that. And I feel like, you know, that feeling accompanied me throughout my time there. Right. When you grow up in Memphis and you move away, you take Memphis with you, I think. You take something with you. And I can't really articulate it, but you do. And I try to explain to people what it's like growing up in Memphis because there's kind of this, it's 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 pervasive, but it's also kind of a quiet racism and a quiet oppression. So many people just live with it. And, you know, we'll talk about that later about your father during the, the sanitation strike. There's so many people who were native Memphians who hadn't moved away, who kind of just, they were kind of resigned to that. But also, you know, your dad, thinking about his time in the Memphis police, right? He started working there when he was in his early twenties. He was really, really young. I'm curious as to why he wanted to work for the Memphis police department, first of all, amid the tension that was in the city at the time. Right. This is something that's really interesting to me about the book and the entire story is, you know, that path that he was on to a career in law enforcement was not something that he orchestrated in advance. This was not a premeditated, you know, venture. He never grew up with this burning desire that he wanted to be a police officer. The truth was that, you know, he what he wanted was to have a you know career. He was interested in agricultural sciences and things like that, you know, having grown up in rural Mississippi. But he wanted a higher education. The way to get that was through the GI Bill. And so he enlisted in the Army and took the entrance exam and was placed in military police school. So this, you know, law enforcement was not something that he chose, but this was chosen for him. And so in this pipeline from high school to military that ended up giving him this professional background of being a military police officer so that when he was discharged from the army in 1967, 23 years old, back in Memphis and cannot get a job, pounding the pavement day after day, you know, looking at classified ads and and getting nothing and finally hearing this ad, a recruiting ad on the radio for the Memphis Police Department, you know, it was his cousin, Eugene, who he was riding to work with, who suggested, hey, you know, Mac, you were a military police officer, so, you know, why wouldn't you put in for this? And my father was pretty incredulous, you know, at the suggestion, but he did it because, you know, he didn't want to let his cousin down. And he said, okay, well, I'll just go down there and pick up the application, which, you know, turned out to, to be far more complicated than that. But he became a Memphis police officer essentially because that was the only sort of upwardly mobile career that he had access to by virtue of his military background. But again, this was a path that he was on in pursuit of trying to live out his full humanity, you know, his, his pursuit of self-determination and trying to make something of himself. Yeah, there were so many serendipitous moments in his story. The, the police department was like you'd imagine it would be in 1967. There was still police brutality and he had to endure some, you know, obviously, racism within the force. He was one of only, I think, two on the force. You know, how did he endure that, endure that kind of duality yeah, and I think it was, you know, from his perspective, coming from the Mississippi Delta 
and having grown up in Jim Crow where black people were not allowed to enforce the law, period, you know, and, you know, his first awareness of law enforcement was learning about this sheriff in his county who was known for torturing and murdering black people. And so, you know, black folks were not given badges and and commissioned as police officers. So, from my father's perspective, coming to Memphis was a huge step up. I mean, first of all, you have a professional police department. They have a police academy where the officers are trained, you know, and they actually do have black officers on the force. I mean, at the time, the police department was about, I want to say 5.5% black at a time when the city itself was probably over a third black. So clearly, you know, black folks were not like, you know, welcomed, you know, on the police force in great numbers. However, there were some. And so for my father, that represented a world of opportunity that was just completely closed to him where he grew up. And so my sense is he was looking at the Memphis Police Department as an opportunity to be part of that change. You know, everybody could see the changes happening in society. The change was in the music. The change was in the culture. And so these weren't changes that were happening overnight. The civil rights movement was in full swing. And so I believe he saw himself as part of that, bringing change onto the force, being this black officer who, you know, to him, law enforcement meant enforcing the law equally towards everybody every single time, you know, but at the same time, I believe there was also this naivete there, you know, being 23 years old and not realizing that the mindset within law enforcement was something very different, which really came down to reinforcing the status quo. Yeah. And so he, I don't think was really cognizant of of those differences, the difference in his attitude towards law enforcement vis-a-vis his colleagues. And then I just think just generally there was less social awareness. You know, of course, you know, this is long before the days of cell phones and social media. And so while there was police brutality and there were these issues in policing, you know, specifically in Memphis, you know, there were reactions to police brutality, but there just wasn't that widespread, you know, awareness of abuses in society the way that there is today. So it just was not something that was top of mind for him. I think one of the things that you didn't explicitly say in the book, but I kind of gathered was that once things started to escalate during the civil rights movement, I think that some of the, how can I put this? I think that things started to escalate with the racial tensions, obviously with the racial tensions, but there seemed to be more obvious backlash, I think, from the police with the Black citizens there, right? Is is that something that I'm imagining or is that is that the case? Yeah, I mean... What's interesting is that, you know, nationally, there certainly was this unrest. And, you know, 1967, the country had come through the long, hot summer, you know, in various cities, there had been these, you know, huge reactions in urban centers against incidents of police brutality and things. But then in Memphis, by contrast, it was much more laid back. I mean, which is part of the reason why the sanitation strike kind of came as such a surprise to many people because Memphis just did not have these kinds of issues that you might have found, you know, in a, a Los Angeles or Detroit or someplace like that. 
it was this kind of uh, situation where the powers that be, you know, these were white people who controlled the city, who were the power brokers. And there was a sense, you know, that, oh, our people are fine. We get along. But clearly there were, you know, issues brewing under the surface that soon boiled over in 1968 with the sanitation strike. But I think that there just hadn't really been occasion until the sanitation strike came along for law enforcement to have this reaction to some of the changes. Now, of course, once the sanitation strike starts up, then you start to see the reaction with, you know, having demonstrations where police are spraying, you know, entire crowds with mace and beating people and things like that. You know, one of the things, speaking of the mace, there's a really funny story. I don't know if it's funny. It's actually kind of of cruel, but a funny story where mace had just been introduced to the force and there's a photo of your father. They, they They were testing the mace on some of the newer police officers and they tested it with the surprise attack on your father. And that was in the the local newspaper, the photos of, you know, these police officers being maced, which brings me to my next question. I think one of the things that I gathered from his stories was that the Memphis Police Department both needed him, but they also didn't truly value him because they didn't they didn't really protect him when they sent him undercover. They did so kind of haphazardly. You know, it was kind of risky. He didn't have a really strong backstory. Is that the sense that you got too that they both needed him, but didn't fully value him? Absolutely. Well said. I mean, I think there was such a lack of care that was so apparent in the way that he was treated, you know, as you mentioned with the macing, where when I saw this story, when I came across this in the uh, Commercial Appeal archives, I mean, my first question was, you know, out of all these recruits, they're going to choose the black guy, you know, to like mate down and then have this huge photo spread about it. But then, you know, also this undercover mission, you know, sending him into this group that they clearly know little about and they need him to be their eyes and ears to gather information. And they just took such little care in, you know, ensuring that he was safe. And, you know, the fact that, you know, he's going to go undercover now in this black group when he has been seen in uniform by probably, you know, a good chunk of black Memphis and has been in the newspaper a couple of times. It just does speak to this issue of how oftentimes, you know, we as black people, you know, marginalized people, how often we are needed, you know, we are essential and yet we are not valued. Yeah. So the sanitation strike and him going undercover. So the sanitation strike happens and it started when two men were were killed on the job during sanitation work. They were crushed in the, the bed of the sanitation truck. They were striking because of working conditions for the sanitation workers in Memphis. So that's the backstory for that. And so your father was sent undercover to a Black militant group called the Invaders, right? Now, tell me who the Invaders were. How did they compare to the Black Panthers and to SNCC at the time? Just what was their place in this moment in history of activism? Yes. So the Invaders were a very loosely knit group of young Black people, men and women, who were, you know, Black militants. I think they 
you know, took inspiration from the Black Panthers and they took inspiration from SNCC and similar groups. And so their focus was on Black self-determination in our communities. And, you know, coming from this perspective of young folks who they felt like, you know, nobody listened to because they didn't have any money, they were young and they were Black. So, you know, they were, you know, among the most marginalized people in Memphis. And they thought, we understand the struggles better than anybody, probably, because we live it, we experience it. And so why not put our heads together and put our resources together and find some solutions where we're not coming out with our hats in our hands asking for equality, but we're taking what's ours, we're taking control. And by the way, we're also instilling pride in ourselves and young people through cultural education, through putting together programs for youth so we can learn about our history, take pride in who we are, and then, you know, hopefully strengthen our own communities and our own institutions. And so that was really the focus. And philosophically, you know, they were into Franz Fanon, you know, reading Mao and things like that, far left wing, you know, politics and all of these kind of, you know, kind of socialist and perhaps communist sorts of ideas, but all with a view towards Black folks' liberation. And they were really one of many groups under the umbrella of a group called the Black Organizing Project. But because of you know, I think the name, you know, the invaders, which sort of brings to mind, you know, this group that's coming in and taking over and, and also just kind of the swagger that they had, that militant look with the afros and the denim jackets and the leather jackets. And some of them had, you know, invaders lettered across the back. They quickly garnered a lot of attention. They got sensationalistic coverage in the local media, you know, at one of the two Memphis news papers at the time, the Memphis Press Cemetery. And so they were painted in the media, you know, as a potentially dangerous group. And likewise, law enforcement, hearing that rhetoric that they were talking and, you know, seeing sort of their their swagger and, you know, just, just seeing kind of the stances, you know, that they took was uh, concerned, you know, about, you know, what is this group going to do? Are they going to try to radicalize folks in town, particularly now that we have a strike? And likewise, they, I mean, my sense is they wanted to be seen as dangerous because that's the only way they felt like they could be taken seriously. I mean, that was the leverage that they had was to present this image of a group that folks needed to deal with seriously. And so my dad was in an interesting position, you know, kind of as a fact finder to find out, you know, are they really dangerous? Like the paper is saying in the police department seems to be worried about, you know, and that they want to present. And so he was able to go in there and really kind of look around, talk to folks, observe and report back on what the actual facts were. But for the most part, from the stories, you know, in the book, they seemed harmless, you know, typically, like most of the time they were pretty harmless. Like I remember, you know, reading the stories about them drinking Robitussin and like mixing it with juice. I mean, it's, they just seemed like kids, right? Exactly. I mean, I personally, I was charmed by them in a way because they were kids and they really had these lofty goals 
my sense is that they really they really needed some guidance, you know, that they were missing, although, you know, efforts were made, like James Lawson, the head of the community on, on the move for equality that was leading kind of the sanitation strike support efforts. You know, he had attempted to take a couple of the leaders uh, under his wing, but that didn't really work out. However, they were harmless. I don't think that they would have liked to have been described as harmless. And I don't think that, you know, law enforcement was ready to accept that view. And that's not a view that would have sold many newspapers, but that was exactly the conclusion that my father came to. Yeah. And so they kind of forked, I think, from, I guess, the perceived philosophy that Dr. King had. And that I know there was a statement that's in the book, a statement that they wrote about, you know, not wanting to sit beside the white man, right? They wanted, like you said, liberation. And they thought that was a more militant stance. And I guess that was seen as more of a threat by, you know, the powers that be, you know, the police department. But I'm curious as to, so your father was undercover in the invaders. How did he find himself at the Lorraine Motel? on April 4th. Right. And this is another one of those instances of a path leading places that you would never imagine. And so my father, you know, at this time, April 4th, 1968, you know, has embedded himself within the invaders, which wasn't that difficult to do, which speaks to the fact that they weren't dangerous. They were not vetting people. You know, there was no real, like, you know, application process to become an invader. I mean, this is not like a dangerous terrorist group by any stretch. But anyway, he, in fact, had embedded himself so deeply in the group that he was named their Minister of Transportation, which was because he was one of the few members who had a car. And so that's what he did. He drove people around, which gave him a perfect vantage point from which to listen to what they were doing and see what they were doing. And so it was on this day, April 4th, that he was acting in this role, you know, providing transportation. And so he had taken the Reverend James Orange, who was at the time one of uh, Dr. King's cohorts in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, had taken him shopping to find a pair of four-button overalls to wear to a demonstration that Dr. King was to lead in Memphis. And there were a couple of female college students, a couple of women, young Black women, who accompanied them. And they drove all over town trying to find these four-button overalls and weren't able to do that. And so then they reconvene at a church called Claiborne Temple, which was one of the nerve centers of the strike supporters. They pick up James Bevel, another one of uh, Dr. King's aides. And from there, they decide, you know, because it's getting close to dinner time, to go over to the Lorraine Motel, which was the SCLC's locus of operations in Memphis. Dr. King was staying there and had a room. And then the group had also gotten a room for the invaders so that the two groups could talk about what was going to happen at Dr. King's uh, demonstration and hopefully get the invaders to kind of act as marshals and ensure that this would be a peaceful demonstration. And so, you know, they drive over to the Lorraine, the sun is setting, uh, they get there, pull into the parking lot. And what do they see but Dr. King standing on the second floor balcony outside of room 306. And he's leaning on the railing. He's talking to the people in the parking lot below it's a big spectacle, you know, it's, here is Dr. King, you know, what is he saying? And, you know, he's kind of laughing, he's lighthearted. My father and, and you know, everybody else, they get out of the cars and, you know, they're, you know, just as they're approaching to kind of the, hear the conversation, there is a thunderous boom. 
And I've heard reports, you know, of how, you know, some folks didn't know what it was initially. They thought, oh, you know, maybe it was a car backfiring. Maybe it was a firecracker. My father immediately knew that it was a gunshot with his military training and also being a trained police officer. You know, unlike a lot of folks who are not necessarily going to be running into an active shooter situation. In fact, I would say, you know, there are very few people who would do that. And particularly somebody who is trying to protect their cover, which my father was, uh, you know, having to do. But he saw Dr. King fall and his thought was somebody's got to do something. And, you know, he was trained to, to provide first aid. And so he ran up an external staircase, dropped to a crawl, passed a cleaning cart on the way over to Dr. King and grabbed a towel off that cart and used the towel to apply pressure to Dr. King's wounded jaw, which is the moment that's captured in the famous photograph. Right. That's incredible. First of all, he stayed undercover even after that, for a long time after this this happened, right? Which was incredible because there's a part where he's he's at the scene and he, he sees a police officer and he goes, a white police officer, and he goes and he tells them, you know, I'm a police officer too, but I'm undercover. And he tells them where the shooter was, where he thinks the shooter was. But it's incredible that this cover wasn't blown. Yeah, no, it is. It's incredible. And yeah, that is a moment where he was putting his cover at risk. I mean, first of all, you know, running up there and being in this photograph, you know, that is going to put his cover at risk. And then sidling up to this uh, lieutenant and just kind of saying in a low voice, revealing that he's undercover. Yeah, it's, it is just amazing that he was still, despite these things and other things that happened, that he was able to maintain his cover for almost another year. He said there was something about the, either the sound, the volume, or the smell that stood out to him, and it didn't strike him as a civilian gun. Is that right? Am I getting that part right? What was the conclusion to that? There were some anomalies to his mind that just didn't quite add up. And the main one was a strong odor of gunpowder, which is not something you're typically going to smell a great distance from where the firearm is fired. But he smelled this strong odor on the balcony where the bullet lodged into or, you know, went hit Dr. King. And so he thought that was very unusual. Also, just the nature of the wound itself, the way that it appeared, the way that, you know, just the damage that he saw and the blood spatter on Dr. King's shirt. He put those details together and concluded that the bullet exploded. That was his impression. That was something that he raised with these two FBI agents that he spoke with, you know, who interviewed him shortly after the assassination. My father's conclusion was that, you know, this was a different kind of bullet than you're going to find you know, off the shelf. And what these agents told him was, that's just not possible. The, no such bullet you know, exists. We don't even have that kind of bullet you know, in the FBI. So you know, you're just mistaken. And so that was the end of that. And, and there's really no further, I guess, exploration of that. I have tried to kind of track down some answers, which, I mean, I am far from a firearms expert. I mean, I, I had to study, you know, just to figure out just the very basic information about these firearms and, and bullets. But it'd be great if somebody did pick up that thread to look into what they make of, of my father's assessment, because to this day, he is adamant that there was something strange about that bullet. 
Yeah. Does he have a theory? You know, I... <laughs> he will not theorize. I mean, this is my dad. He, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I worked for so many years, you know, interviewing him, trying to get his feelings, his impressions, your know, subjective information from him. He's not that willing to just give subjective information. And there's certain things where he's kind of, he tends to talk a little bit like a police report and kind of just the facts, ma'am, you know, <laughs> he will not sort of give into this, you know, conjecture about, oh, it could be this, it might be that. He's just saying, you know, this is what I observed and this is what I concluded. The end. He has no theories about it. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the way his mind works interesting following this like you said he was undercover for a, a year after this which again is incredible but years after this decades even there was some suspicion around him and or the invaders that they were somehow involved in the assassination right and that was pretty tough for him to, to live through how did that conclude and you know how did he feel about that just generally yeah, I think that was really tough for him in ways that hadn't really, he hadn't really had an opportunity to unpack until we started talking through it. And I think the first time that these suspicions really impacted his life was after he had left the Memphis Police Department. You know, his cover was blown in 69. So then he was overtly, you know, police officer and he ended up going from the Intelligence Bureau to Vice and Narcotics and did that for several years and then ended up getting recruited by the CIA after pursuing just a career that would allow him to kind of move up without hitting the kind of ceiling that he hit in uh, the Memphis Police Department. And that's a story in and of itself. But anyway, he winds up with the CIA. And it was at the CIA that these conspiracy theories start to impact his life. In the late 70s, the U.S. Congress has a select committee on assassinations. This is in the House of Representatives. And so they are investigating the assassinations of JFK and MLK. And so in the course of these investigations, you have congressional investigators who are going around talking to everybody who was an eyewitness to the assassination, everybody who might have, you know, knowledge about what happened to get to the bottom of whether there was a conspiracy to kill Dr. King. Did James Earl Ray really kill Dr. King? Uh, matters of this nature. And so uh, these investigators come to the CIA to question my father. The nature of his work at the CIA was not information that uh, could be made public, not in a way that would allow him to continue there. And so once again, you know, his job is kind of in jeopardy if there's this, you know, public knowledge of who he is and what he's doing. And so he's got to navigate that. He's got to answer the questions, cooperate, of course, you know, which he's very willing to do, but at the same time worried that, you know, his employment is going to be disclosed and his career is going to be derailed. But yeah, he's got to answer these questions. He ends up having to testify in a public hearing where he's asked painful questions. You know, one of the questions was, do you think that your actions in trying to, you know, apply pressure to Dr. King's wound, do you think that that could have harmed Dr. King? You know, could that have killed him? I can only imagine 
the gut punch, you know, such a question must have been when he actually ran up there, put himself potentially in jeopardy to try to save Dr. King's life and now being viewed as potentially having a role in ending Dr. King's life. But this is when the conspiracy, you know, theories and the questions around him start to kind of coalesce. And then this continues into the 1990s when you have a figure, Lloyd Jowers, who ran a restaurant in the bottom floor of this rooming house where James Earl Ray was staying and where he, you know, fired the fatal shot from. Well, um, Lloyd Jowers claims that he had a role in the assassination. He told various stories that uh, weren't always consistent. Consistent. But one of the stories was that my father and other law enforcement officers came into Jim's Grill to plan the murder of Dr. King, you know, and so my father had to kind of deal with these uh, allegations. There was a book that was published where, you know, my father's mentioned by name as having a role in the assassination, you know, total lies. So he's got to deal with that. And not only on a personal level, you know, does he have to deal with the pain of of being seen in this way, but he's also got to keep this from derailing his life, you know, interrupting his livelihood. You know, what's really interesting about that is that he was the one who ran, like you said, put himself in danger to try to actually save him. So, you know, it's I, I can imagine how insulting and, and, and painful that is to to be then accused of, you know, actually causing his death. There are just so many issues that flow from the natural trajectory of his life as, I guess, uncanny as it was and unusual. You can kind of see, you know, in every step of the story, how one event influences the next and put him on this path just because he wanted to, you know, have a career. He wanted what everybody wants, you know, he wanted yeah. to kind of use his talents and his gifts and his abilities to be who he could become. And because of that, he winds up at the scene of one of history's tragic murders. One of my favorite chapters in the book is titled Flag. And that's where you talk about your own experiences with race. And, you know, you had moved, you'd moved out of Memphis, I think. And there's a story where you're having dinner with some couples and, you know, it was shortly after the 2016 election. And there was kind of a confrontation at the dinner because one of the couples, you know, voted, voted for Trump. I love this chapter because you talk about something that I struggle with myself is that, you know, how do we behave and how do we respond when we're in these environments, these, you know, mostly white environments, when we're thrust in these environments or we enter them because, you know, like your your father did, he, he had a career plan that he wanted, a career path that he wanted, or we find ourselves in college or we find ourselves at a dinner with people from our kids' school, for instance. You know, how do we behave? And I think that's what I meant earlier in the conversation we were talking about. You, know, you kind of internalize that oppression right? To the point where sometimes we find ourselves oppressing ourselves, right? <laughs> and that's when we know that it's worked the way that it was intended, when we start to kind of police ourselves, right? And so you had this moment in this book, which is really beautiful, where you confronted this, this couple. And I want you to, to talk about that, but I want to read this quote. This is my, my favorite quote. You said, I found myself in a place where I needed to be accepted when I should have been in a place where I belonged. Between these two conditions lay all the difference in the world. If belonging is a rich, life-sustaining meal, acceptance is a thin gruel. You can survive on it, but that's about all you'll do. I just love that. I'm going to save this and keep it somewhere. But, you know, talk about that story about, you know, how your feelings, your own feelings evolved. 
Yes, and um, that chapter was a really tough one to write because, I mean, it really kind of cut to the heart of what I feel is, I guess, one of the big challenges of being, you know, a Black American, a Black woman today, where, you know, now we're past at least de jure segregation, even if there is certain, you know, de facto segregation that still exists. And and so now we're in these environments. However, what has happened is that... We, it's not so much that society has desegregated, but we've been integrated into predominantly white institutions. And there's a difference there. You know, I've been talking to people about this. I had a great conversation with a man who was one of the first people in Memphis to integrate uh, one of the big high schools there. And he talked about the difference. You know, it wasn't like white students were being bused to like Hamilton High School, you know. (laughs) No, we we it's not so much that we desegregated. We we were integrated into And so I feel like that was the position that I was in and a lot of folks, you know, in our generation. So we're placed in these situations where we are integrated into predominantly white institutions and social settings. And perhaps with the expectation that, yes, we're going to be treated fairly. You know, we we belong here just like everybody else does, but not necessarily prepared for the lack of real, I guess, I mean, you could even say a backlash against that. The ways in which folks communicate to you, whether explicitly or implicitly, that you actually don't belong here and you are not one of us and being made to feel less than, you know, whether it's through like, you know, microaggressions or like macroaggressions, you know, like aggression, aggression. And so the scene that you describe, I feel kind of encapsulates that predicament. You know, at this point, I'm, you know, grown woman, I've got two kids, I have had a professional career. And now, you know, I'm kind of living out, you know, that path that, you know, from the outside, probably looks pretty successful, but how have I somehow, you know, how has success for me meant living in this environment where I'm sitting at a dinner table breaking bread with people who voted for somebody that stands for oppression of people like me? And they're announcing this proudly, you know, what does it mean? And all the times that I wore the mask and I played nice and really was playing into this idea of respectability politics, was I not that, you know, well, if I conducted myself in a certain way, if I expressed myself in a certain way, then people would treat me better because I was more respectable. Well, that hadn't worked out very well at all, had it, (laughs) you know? And so it was in that scene that I decided I'm just going to say what I feel, which was, you know, how could you do that? How could you vote for this man? And so, you know, it was painful because, you know, the the folks who were in that scene, I mean, I know those people, you know, and I know people who know those people, but it's the truth. It's just the truth. And I'm not going to play nice anymore because playing nice gets you nowhere. It gets you less than nowhere. 
Yeah. You know, that's another one of the, the the parallels I think that we have. The reason why I connect with you and the reason why I connected with this, with the book is because there's a, there's a part of the book where you describe like wanting to, you have this like fantasy life, your, your future adult life where you're living in the big city, you know, like the Jeffersons. And, and I had that same fantasy, right? Like living in a loft in New York city or somewhere. Right. And we both have left Memphis. Right. And, and perhaps we were trying to escape some of the same things, right? But as you've just pointed out in the story, we can't really escape. And I wonder if it's different as Memphians in that that kind of internalized oppression. Is it is it deeper in us? I, I don't know. And you know, when we break free or do we feel freer? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I just feel like, I mean, I had the sense from an early age that if I got out, like if I physically got out, yeah, then I would somehow be free. But as you say, you no, know, because, well, first of all, this is America. <laughs> like, you know, we have the same issues from coast to coast, and you're always going to find them, you know, it perhaps manifest in different ways, but they're always going to be there. And not only that, but wherever you go, there you are. So these issues that I had internalized were there all the time with me. So, you know, it wasn't something that I could run from. I had to face it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I remember the most when I think about, you know, my time growing up in Memphis, and I don't know why this sticks out to me, but you talk about being an avid reader when you were younger. And I love to read too. One thing that I remember when I think about why I wanted to escape or why I needed to get away was that for me, there's so much segregation in Memphis, right? We didn't grow up in 1968. It was, you know, 80s, 90s, you know, aughts, right? I grew up in South Memphis and there wasn't a bookstore <laughs> anywhere near my neighborhood. So it was always a huge deal, you know, to, to just go get a book because <laughs> I had to go to the white side of town and my mom would make a big like, oh, you, you got to go to, <laughs> got to drive you way out to like East Memphis to get a book. And it was just such a big deal. And I thought, you know, I want to live in a place where I'm valued enough to have books near me, right? <laughs> and, you know, it, I guess I have that in a sense, but then again, like we've talked about, you can't escape it truly. The best thing we can do is like, try not to internalize it and bring it along with us. But I just thought that story was really funny. But that's the thing that I remember is like, you know, trying to just find a bookstore in South Memphis and there weren't. Yes, <laughs> it's something that was always so frustrating to me. And, you know, I touch on it in the book was that there was just such a divestment from the black parts of Memphis. And, you know, it, it was a segregated place. I mean, I even at this point, I'm telling people I did grow up during segregation because even though it might not have been on the books as a practical matter, you know, it was segregated. And so, you know, success for a lot of folks meant leaving North Memphis, leaving South Memphis, moving to East Memphis, or moving to these far, farther and farther flung suburbs and exurbs. And, you know, I just found that so frustrating that we, and I know that, that a lot has changed and is changing. And there's certainly folks who are pushing to invest, you know, in, in our neighborhoods, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean and can relate to that, you know, having to go to go out East. And again, I mean, I think this speaks to this process, not so much of desegregation, but of, you know, being integrated into white spaces, you know, having to go to these places to obtain resources rather than having resources flow to our communities. To that point, you mentioned later in the book about your noticing the growth of Memphis and how it was kind of arrested following 
King's assassination. And I just wanted to know what your conclusions were following that, because you're right. It does seem like there's been kind of a, a suspension of Memphis, Memphis's growth as a city. And you compare it to New York City during the time and Atlanta. You, you know, what do you think happened there? And how do you think King's assassination affected the city's growth? I think there's some truth to the idea that when Dr. King was murdered in Memphis, it was just such a tragic and hinging moment in American history that the city itself was scarred. The psyche of the place was scarred. And I think that, you know, certainly our reputation as a city took a huge hit. And I mean, there were articles published, you know, about Memphis and, you know, this was the place where this happened. And I feel that it did affect our self-esteem collectively, if you could speak in such terms, you know, I feel that our self-esteem was hurt. I also think that because of the way, I mean, this gets into, I guess, you know, social dynamics and political dynamics, and then, you know, the city of Memphis vis-a-vis -vis the state of Tennessee and the way, you know, legislative power flows and the way that, you know, money flows. But Memphis, it did, it did kind of really face some, some strong headwinds in terms of growth, in terms of development. And then you just have folks who are so, you know, power brokers who are so entrenched, who are so dug in on having things a certain way that even if there's certain progress that would inure to the benefit of Memphis, you know, financially, there are folks who would rather have perhaps fewer opportunities if they can keep the status quo the same. You know, I know I'm, I'm speaking in very broad terms. I think it's really complicated. It's tough to answer, you know, in a short bite, sound bite. But yeah, I, I do think that Memphis is still seeing the effects of the assassination. At the same time, though, I think we have the National Civil Rights Museum in that same place where something so horrible, something so unspeakable happened that you have the birth of an institution that is doing such good work, you know, in the community, not only locally, but nationally and internationally. And so I think there's hope that grows out of that pain and out of all of, you know, the tribulations that we face there. But it's a mark that we bear. Yeah, I feel like the city fell into a long-term period of, of grief. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, you know, just the issue of gun violence, you know, generally. I mean, this is obviously, you know, a very high-profile incidence of gun violence. And there is, um, you know, this thread of violence that weaves through to, you know, current day Memphis. I mean, there are just many, many issues that the city, you know, like many cities faces. And so, it's really tough, but I'm, I'm so hopeful and I see so many people and so many groups doing good work there and anything that I can do to support, I'm so happy to do that because I, I feel like wherever I go, I'm a Memphian. So <laughs> exactly. I'm so rooting for my city. Yeah. Well, Lita, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for writing this beautiful book. I'll probably read it the third time. And just thank you. Thank you for being such a wonderful, beautiful person. Thank you. And likewise, thank you for being a wonderful, beautiful person and all the great work that you're doing. And it's been such an honor to speak with you about this book and about our hometown. <laughs>